Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blowers. And this episode, Katrina, is all about the right to disconnect after work. Yeah, an issue close to my heart because I've definitely dreamed about chucking my phone and my laptop in a drawer as soon as I get home and not looking at them again until the morning. But then there is always a phone call from someone I didn't get to during the day or an email that I'm replying to after dinner, usually while I'm watching TV or something at the same time. That idea of always being on and work creeping into your home life, I feel like it's gotten worse during COVID because our homes became our office during that time. Well, our phones are almost our office. It is kind of crazy. Where this whole issue really hit home for me was hearing the story from someone I know who's a high school teacher. And she told me that all of the parents of all of her students have her email address and can reach out whenever they want. So if you're teaching, say five classes of 25 students each, that's a hundred sets of parents you have to respond to um, often after hours. God, that is a lot. So this is really shaping up as an important battle in workers' rights. There's a fight to get the right to disconnect, as it's known, written into contracts and enterprise agreements. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to speak to a teacher Uh, and also a workplace expert and senator to hear more about this movement because it's already taken off in some European countries and now in Australia, Victorian police and Queensland teachers have successfully lobbied for a right to work in their contracts. So how does it work practically and will everyone get it? That is our briefing topic in the second half of the episode. But first, let's get into today's headlines. It is Tuesday, November 29. The Nationals Party has come out against the Indigenous voice to Parliament. We have to stop dividing our nation along the lines of race. So that is National Centre and Indigenous woman Jacinta Price there. So the voice to Parliament would be the permanent constitutionally enshrined body representing First Nations people that requires a referendum to be made into law. So Jacinta Price's party leader, the Nationals leader David Littleproud, has said they don't think it will genuinely close the gap. We believe in empowering local Indigenous communities, giving them the power at a local level, not creating another layer of bureaucracy here in Canberra. And here's the response from Indigenous Elder and Labor Senator Pat Dodson. I don't see it as a setback, quite frankly. I think this is the beginning. The campaign hasn't even begun. Yeah, it does seem very early in this campaign for the Nationals to be straight up opposing it unconditionally. And I've got to say, I think David Littleproud's argument is nonsensical. He's created a false binary there that somehow there's a choice. It's either empowering local communities or bringing in this constitutionally enshrined voice when it can actually be both. And if the Nationals really care about empowering local communities, they can work towards that alongside the voice. I agree. Uh, The Liberal Party has yet to take a position. It has requested more detail. And I think if if anything has left, I guess, some space here for those voices of dissent to come in, it is that there is a vacuum of information. And Anthony Albanese has said that more information about this voice will be uh, shared in the lead up to the referendum, which is expected at the end of next year. And then the final details and I guess the 
mechanisms are only going to be settled in Parliament after that referendum mm. has been held. I, I guess next year we are going to see more of that detail and I'd really love for that to be laid out super, super clearly so that there isn't room for, I guess, all of this conjecture. I mean, there will be a lot of conjecture anyway, but mm. I guess damaging conjecture. Yeah, but, you know, let's let's have the conjecture once we have the information and we can have a, a real debate rather than jumping in so early. I, I do think you make a good point, though, that by letting this drag out for a long period of time with lots of ambiguity, it does leave room for this kind of move by the Nationals. I think Pat Dodson's right, though. You could still get this up without the Nationals supporting it, but it depends if that influences the Liberals, if it pushes them to not support it as well, then the campaign will be in trouble. But that'd be a risky move for the Liberal Party. We saw them get smashed again in Victoria because they're out of touch with younger voters who are more progressive on these issues. So this will be a real test for them as well. Oh, absolutely. Meanwhile, in other news coming out of Canberra, Scott Morrison is set to be officially censured in Parliament this week over his decision to secretly appoint himself to a number of extra ministries. And the latest drop from Nikki Savas' forthcoming book has one of Morrison's strongest allies, Alex Hawke, speaking out against him, saying he got addicted to executive mm. power. He was bad at taking advice and should have left Parliament straight after the election. Well, Ouch. Maybe he'll leave Parliament straight after the censor motion. Late last night, a bill was passed that'll see companies face a penalty of $50 million or more if they fail to protect customer data during breaches. Yeah, so this is a response to the Medibank and Optus hacks. Uh, The maximum penalty for one of these breaches will now be 22 times higher than it was. And companies are making their own moves to protect their customers. Telstra announced last week that they'd only keep scanned ID documents for six months now instead of two years. The Reserve Bank has issued an interesting apology. Hmm. It's kind of a qualified apology that you give someone through gritted teeth. (laughs) That's after telling us rates would be unlikely to rise until 2024. I'm sorry that people listened to what we'd said and acted on that and now find themselves in a position they don't want want to be in. But at the time, we thought it was the right thing to do. And I think uh, looking back, we would have chosen different language. So that's the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe there, who is just under ongoing pressure for this guidance Mm. because this can screw up people's lives. They put their life savings into a home and now they're seeing prices go backwards and their interest payments skyrocket because instead of waiting till at least 2024, we've had seven increases since then. Four of them were double increases, 50 basis points, and three of them single 25 basis point increases. So that took rates from 0.1% to 2.85%, and some mortgage rates now are up around 6 or 7%. So that's put people under huge pressure. And yeah, the wording was interesting. I mean, I think it was a fairly solid apology, but yeah, I'm sorry people listened to what we said. It's like, mate, you're you're the guy that sets interest rates. Of course we listened. Yeah, yeah. I think it was poor judgment. I think if he could walk back that comment that he would, particularly in light of what has happened and the pile-on that has happened since then. But cautionary tale for future Mm. RBA governors. I believe his term is up very soon. It'll be interesting to see if it is renewed. And Australia's terror threat level has been dropped from probable to possible for the first time in eight years. After careful consideration and consultation, 
ASIO is lowering Australia's national terrorism threat level to possible. That's the head of ASIO, Mike Burgess. The probable threat level has been in place since 2014 following the emergence of the Islamic State, which has been defeated. So the change in threat allows ASIO to reallocate resources and they're now focusing more on counter-espionage and cyber attacks and Chinese activity in Australia. So, I mean, it's, it's really a good news story that at least one of those threats has been downgraded. That was a huge time in our history, you know, those lone wolf attacks from Islamic extremists. They were they were really frightening and they, they hit us here yeah. in Australia even. Yeah, and I guess it is comforting news to hear that, but um, I guess the way that uh, terrorism is now developing, it's really, really changing. And a few quick stories. The World Health Organisation uh, will rename monkeypox to mpox following racism concerns. Reminds me of the Hanson song, Mbop. <laughs> Only you would think of that. <laughs> that. Oh, goodness, that's a cultural reference. Uh, a UN report is recommending the Great Barrier Reef be put on the World Heritage in Danger list, so not great news there. And the world's biggest volcano has begun erupting in Hawaii for the first time in 40 years. And, uh, wow, they, they can be huge, those volcanoes there, and have a, a big impact and go on for ages. And let's hope it doesn't have an impact on flights. And uh, if you're a chocolate fan, Mars Bar, Milky Way and Snickers wrappers are going to be changing from plastic to paper. It's uh, said to be removing 360 tonnes of plastic from that company's product chain. And that change is going to come about in April, so time for Easter. All right, in just a moment, you're right to disconnect. Now let's get into today's briefing topic on a new workplace right to digitally disconnect. Now this means, Tom, that once you finish your set hours of work for the day, you can switch off your work email, you don't have to pick up any phone calls and your boss is legally obliged to respect that. Mm, Yes, it sounds good in theory, doesn't it? In practice, I'll be very interested to find out more about how that can actually be so clearly delineated. Looking at the the push for this around the world, France was the first European country to introduce these kinds of laws. It's then spread to Italy, Spain, Ireland and Portugal. Big companies like Volkswagen have actually been doing this for more than 10 years. Last year, Victorian police won this right and last week it was Queensland teachers. Uh, Their union successfully lobbied for this in their latest enterprise agreement. Yeah, and a Senate committee's recommended the Fair Work Act be amended so this can be accessed by everyone. We're going to get an expert opinion on how this will work and what the cultural and mental health benefits are in just a moment. But first, let's talk to a Queensland teacher who wants us to keep her identity anonymous. Thank you so much for joining us. As a high school teacher, how bad has the after-hours contact become? Um, We have all of our contact pretty much on our devices now um, so that we can be accessed after school. And the problem is, is that everyone wants to tell you immediately how they feel, how they, uh, what they're thinking, all of those things. And, you know, your phone is constantly going off, whether that be with emails, Teams messages, all of those things, because the kids can access you, the parents can access you, the admin can access you, everyone. So it's just a constant, constant access. This blows my mind what you teachers have to deal with now. So just to clarify, 
you might have, say, what, 25 students in a class and you might teach, what, four or five classes throughout the week? Uh, I, yeah, I teach six classes. Most of my classes okay. have between 20 to 25 students in them. So, I don't know, 150 so kids. 150 kids and they can reach yeah. out to you and their parents and then all your colleagues at the school. Yes, anytime they like, they can reach out. So that's hundreds of people. Yeah, all of the staff are like that. So we all teach a full load, six classes, average of 20 to 25 kids, their parents. And it's not just their parents, they can have multiple branches of their family. So you could be getting messages from one parent and different messages from other parents as well. So the classroom clearly never ends for you, basically, even when you're on holidays. What impact does this have on on you in terms of interrupting your personal life and also your mental health and, and happiness and well-being? Well, my parents and my husband have told me, you need to stop. In terms of my mental health, I do try to specifically make work for work and home for home, but it's not always possible. And I do wake up and I'm like, oh, did I answer that email? Did I respond to this? Does everyone have what they need to have? And it does make my brain tick over middle of the night because I, I don't know, I care about my job and I care about my students, but I also need to stop as well. All right, so that was our anonymous Queensland teacher. Let's go to a workplace expert now. Barbara Pocock is now a federal Green senator, but before she was elected earlier this year, she worked as a professor at the University of South Australia and she's written several books on work-life balance. Barbara, thanks for joining us. How much impact is technology having on people's lives after hours? Well, very big impact. We've got research findings from recent surveys of Australian workers saying Many of them are working from home more than they uh, were pre-pandemic, certainly. And that's partly enabled by their preferences and, of course, by wanting to stay away from the office. But it's really facilitated by these monumental shifts in technology. They don't affect every worker. So if you're in a face-to-face role, of course, it won't make much difference. But for any of us who are using computers to uh, connect, we now carry our office, you know, in our handbag or back pocket in the form of the phone. So it's a massive transformation in the way we work. And of course, that flows onto the rest of our lives. I feel like this has happened relatively quickly too, like it definitely accelerated in the space of of the last decade. Are there certain industries that are affected more by this than others? Yes. Well, the occupations that seem to be doing a lot more of this work are professional occupations, clerical, public sector, marketing, any kinds of jobs where you're interacting very regularly by computer. It's a combination of the technology being there, the pandemic interrupting the way we were working, and yes, that wide range of really mostly white-collar occupations that are most affected. So step us through the impacts on someone's life. You know, clearly it, it eats up minute by minute into your personal life, but I imagine, and I, you know, have experience as well, this sort of ekes out further actually into your your headspace and your mental health. Yes, I think there's now quite a large body of research which tells us that multitasking makes us less productive. People who are working more intensively and combining activities can have worse mental health and are more vulnerable to burnout. And I think a growing number of employers are aware of this, but certainly employees. But there's also pressure coming on workers to get the job done, uh, to keep up with their colleagues, 
often they feel they've lost workers in a workplace so it's more intensive to get the jobs done so you know pressure alongside the expansive nature of your working time are what affect your mental health and it's not just your mental health it's also you know opportunities to look after your health to get physical exercise and then of course there is the interaction with your family the people you love the people you want to spend time with the computer the phone can really intrude into that time as well and that is a special burden of stress for mothers and for women so in the long run i mean we often talk about the the benefit things like this would have on employees but in the long run do you reckon this has been bad for employers as well we've heard of that phenomenon of quiet quitting that's happened uh, post pandemic is the increased output and the flexibility not really worth the damage and the burnout that it's doing to workers Well, I definitely think we need to pay attention to that burnout and that damage because it's reflected in our health budget. It's reflected in the quality of our personal lives and that matters. And it matters too to employers in terms of productivity. But I think it's more about the way we manage this. It's not in itself a bad thing. Um, I've spent many years doing research on flexibility at work and many workers want this kind of flexibility. They want to work at home two days a week or or even three days a week uh, if they're in a full-time job. It helps them put together their home and their job in a more productive way. What's dangerous is when the job expands. Um, And we've got recent research just a week ago about the fact that the average worker in Australia is now doing six weeks of unpaid time. Now, that's a consequence of poorly managing our technology and the weakening boundary around working time. We're giving a lot of unpaid time in our workplaces. That's an average. Some workers are giving less, but a lot are giving a lot more. That's essentially a form of wage theft, if you like. And it's a sign that we're not managing these technologies and keeping, you know, an awareness about what a 38-hour week really should look like. So for me, it's not the technology that's evil or that the flexibility is bad. It's the way that we put it together and, and manage it. Which I think highlights how complex it, it must be to actually make change and to get this right because those barriers are so unclear and as you've touched on, some of them are, are in our best interest. They give us that flexibility to be able to get things done in our personal life as well. So tell us how the new laws work. We've mentioned the, the Victorian police and the Queensland teachers. How is it working in those agreements and, and how will it work more broadly? Well, what many countries are looking at is is how to manage this problem. It's not just an Australian problem. They're looking at uh, a new awareness around the right to disconnect. That is, once you've done your hours of work, you should be able to say, that's it, Uh, I'm going to turn off those machines. And the employer, your manager, even your co-workers shouldn't be contacting you to get you to do things related to work unless it's an emergency. The uh, Victorian police were the first to negotiate an agreement which makes this very clear. It's an enterprise agreement which says the employer won't contact you unless it's an emergency or they're checking on your wellbeing and you have the right. Just turn it off and recover. And you can imagine in policing work, that's really important. If you want to avoid burnout, you want to recover from often quite traumatic events at work, you need rest time. But we're now seeing it in a range of other agreements in Australia, in Queensland and in Victoria, teachers. I've interviewed many, many teachers principals who spend their weekends, um, much of their holidays, doing the work related to looking after our kids and teaching, and they need a rest as well. 
I reckon it's going to be a tricky re-education process for a lot of parents in Queensland, Barbara, because during the pandemic, (laughs) when we shifted to at-home learning, the only way to contact with teachers was via email or phone call. And now I feel like that's become the standard way of communicating with teachers. So how's this going to work, do you think, when parents all of a sudden get that line of communication completely switched off? Well, yes, I think the pandemic was an exceptional circumstance, wasn't it, where we really needed to flip the way we communicated with each other. And yes, I think you're right, the cultural norms have moved and they will need to be moved back if we're going to look at a right to disconnect. But it doesn't mean your email won't be answered. It just means hopefully it won't be answered at 10 o'clock at night when a worker's, you know, trying to reconnect with their partner or rest or recover and, and have a private life. I think these things in the education world are a significant challenge, which is why we're seeing negotiations like this. It's a cultural shift for some of us, but it's important to be talking about. And that was Senator Barbara Pocock, who is also the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Work and Care. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be different for every different industry and quite complex and hard to manage in in some of those industries because, as we mentioned, there are upsides to being flexible. So how do you sort of work out the ledger on on your time? The interesting point is that once you have a, a right and you establish this concept it makes the conversation easier. And so as much as this might be a specific change in contracts and enterprise agreements, it's also a cultural change in the way we, we deal with these issues in our in our relationships at work with our bosses. Yeah, and not just that, but I mean, I often check my emails at home in front of my kids and they, because they, I'm, you know, at them about time spent on their devices and they're like, but what about you, mum? You're on your phone. And I say, it's work. But really, do I need to be checking my work emails quite so much? I probably don't. So I think this type of cultural shift, it, it makes you rethink everything, which I think after the pandemic, I think we all need to. But the point you're making there, I think, also highlights that it's our responsibility as well to control our own behaviour and take responsibility for when we pick up our devices. Sadly, yes. Another case of just having to be an adult about things. (laughs) And your kids reminding you of that. Yeah, exactly. Tomorrow on The Briefing, all the latest information on freezing your eggs. Listener.